Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living, a program designed to educate and inspire listeners throughout Indian country. American Indian and Alaska Native Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he is here today to help you learn more about your health. Here is Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Today we've got a show lined up for you that is really designed to really put you in the driver's seat when it comes to your own emotions. We're talking about something that can dramatically change your outlook on life. To guide us on the journey, we've got an amazing guest in our virtual studio today. His name is Gary Moyer. He's an author. He's a speaker, a life coach. Gary, it is so great to have you with us today. Good to be with you, David. Gary, you and I have had the privilege of rubbing shoulders uh, over the years. I remember some years ago we were in the Carolinas together doing some health programming and other events for a community. You have continued to do that kind of work, enabling communities to really help communities. I know throughout the Carolinas, I've, I've heard your name. I was actually doing some lecturing in South Carolina recently, and the name of Gary Moyer came up. So I know you're making an impact in that part of the country, but I know it's much larger than that. You've got a book that was recently released. Tell us a little bit about that. The book is called Opting for Optimism, David, and it's really, I created it to present a balanced approach to living more positively in a negative world. Wow. I love the concept. Um, there is so much negativity today, and there's this whole movement in psychology, this positive psychology movement where the focus is moving from talking about pathology, talking about disease, talking about the negative thinking and all the things that went into that to trying to cultivate more of the positive thinking. And this is really exciting stuff to me as a physician. Tell us what got you interested in writing on this subject. Well, David, I grew up not an overly positive person. Some people grow up with kind of a uh, an optimistic background. That was not my case. I did not grow up in a dysfunctional home or anything like that with abuse, but uh, had a kind of a negative mindset. And so I kind of struggled with that for years. And then years and years ago, my father-in-law introduced me to a man named Zig Ziglar, his recordings. And that really started me down a road to understanding how to have a more positive mindset that really affects my life in many positive ways and those around me. And so that's, it really got started because of my father-in-law giving me a cassette tape by a man named Zig Ziglar many, many years ago. Okay. Now, a lot of folks have heard the name of Zig Ziglar, and it's a name, if you hear it, you probably won't forget it. Not a lot of people that you run into named Zig. So Zig Ziglar and a cassette tape uh, for those in our audience who are perhaps a bit younger. Uh, they've surely heard of the history of that, just like, uh, you know, black and white uh, film and stuff like that. But so we're going back some time. You hear some of this messaging. What was it about what Ziegler was presenting that resonated with you? What resonated about it was it was a balanced approach. And that's really where my where my book talks about balanced, intentional optimism. Because 
and I mentioned this in my book, a lot of the optimistic thinking out there at least used to be over the top to where a lot of people like myself kind of backed away from it and said, mm. that's overdone. That's not me. It's not realistic. But as I listened to what Zig taught, there was a, a balance to it. It wasn't just, just think positive and everything will be perfect. Just keep a smile on your face and everything works. There was balance to it. And that really drew me in. You know, this is so important because I actually was just listening to something recently, kind of the same idea where someone was talking about being positive in the midst of adversity. And not only did I feel it was a bit over the top, but the person presenting was saying they were exposed to this teaching and a person was saying that they were just talking about horrific things. And, uh, you know, you're supposed to think this is all good. And they were saying, well, uh, uh, there's a problem here. So help us with this. Some people would say, well, you can't be too positive in a negative world. But when we start giving examples, give us some concrete examples of some of the things maybe that you've heard that you would say are just overly optimistic and not realistic. Well, well let me give you an example of one. I mean, this one particular one I made up, but there's been examples of it that, that were real. Something similar to what you said. Let's say someone is in a group of their friends. They walk in and say, guys, I just totaled my car. Totaled it. I'm, I'm, I'm devastated. And in walks the eternal optimist <laughs> who says, John, what are you talking about? Don't you see? This is your opportunity to get a new car. This is <laughs> wonderful. Where's your faith? Where's your optimism? Put a smile on your face. That's over the top. I think most of our listeners would agree with you. Someone's just kind of looking for some empathy. They just lost their car. I mean, you, you, right? And the reality is with the balance I'm talking about, true optimism recognizes problems, but sees them with hope. Okay, there's an answer to this. They don't look at the problem and say, okay, my world is just totally messed up from now on. Instead of defeatism, an optimist comes at it recognizing the problem, but figuring out a way, how do I address this? I want to identify it. Yes, there is problem here. There's grief. There's pain. Okay, what do we do with it now? What I love about the title of your book, Opting for Optimism, is it's basically telling people that they have an option. Now, I'll just be first one to tell you, and I'm sure you've heard this, Gary, but a lot of folks say, well, that's just not me. I mean, that's somebody else. I'm just naturally, uh, they wouldn't use the word pessimistic. They'd say, I'm, you know, I'm a realist. And optimism, that's, you know, kind of pie-in-the-sky stuff, and that's not for me. I'm the person in the group that keeps everyone grounded. How do you respond when someone comes back with a response like that? That really, David, it's interesting you should mention that, because that's, if I were to really pigeonhole who I wrote this book for, although it's really for a, a broad range, it would be for those people. Because that really, to a great degree, was me. And I've realized when we tell ourselves we can't make the choice, that's what's defeating us. We have mm. got to come to the place to where we understand we can make choices and have to make choices how we think. And I talk about this in the book. Just because I may not be a natural optimist does not mean I cannot become an intentional optimist. There are things I can do 
And that's what the, I try to make this book very practical. What do I do to become an intentional optimist? And I call, I, I use a term in the book, bio, B-I-O. You know, a bio is generally the story of your life. But mm-hmm. bio in my book stands for balanced, intentional optimism. And when we have that, we get to create a new bio for our lives, a new biography by being balanced, being intentional in it, in that optimism. I like this. Balanced, intentional optimism. I think most people are resonating with what you're saying, Gary. They may have some questions like me, how this all works. Mm-hmm. We really want to put some some flesh on it, if you will, and give us some examples. I mean, concrete. How, how does someone who's listening right now, and they're like you used to be, as you described yourself, they're one of those people that think, uh, you know, they've got a good enough outlook on life. They don't need to be any more optimistic. But they're hearing what you're saying, and they're thinking, well, is there something here for me? What are you talking about? What's, what's the process? What does it look like? I describe a number of things to do to create, to make a decision for optimism. One of those is practicing gratitude. And this is nothing new, but what we're talking about here is, for instance, Making a list every day. This is something I do. Everything in the book, I never ask anybody to do anything I don't do. And so every day I write down three things I'm thankful for. I have a list, a table that I make. And every day I write down three things I'm thankful for. And within a 30-day period, I try not to repeat that. And I'll put down anything, large or small, just to remind me how much I have, how much I'm, I'm blessed, that term some people use. For instance, I might write down, I'm thankful for my wife. You know, people are a big thing. But I might also say, I'm thankful for this pen in my hand that I have something to write with. I'm thankful for my bed. Some people don't have one. That's one thing. That's just one thing I do to be more optimistic intentional. Now, let me see if I'm understanding this right. Are you saying that in a given month, if I wrote today, if I'm following your personal practice, if I wrote today that I'm thankful for my wife, I'm not supposed to write that as one of the three things for the rest of the month? That's right. Okay. That forces you to find things that are good in your life. And when you do, when you look at that at the end of the month, you say, look at this. In, in one month, here are 90 things that I am, that benefit me. And that gives you this optimistic outlook. Now, there's all kinds of strategies for doing gratitude journals. You describe this system in your book, is that correct? Yes. Now, is there an ideal time of day to do this if we're doing it every day? I mean, do you recommend doing it in the morning, at the end of the day? How do you recommend a, a, someone who's trying to opt for optimism puts this into practice? I recommend it first thing in the in the morning because that's when you're starting your day generally. Now, obviously, some people are starting at night because of a different schedule. They might want to start those at night. In other words, whenever you start your day, you're starting off giving yourself a thankful mindset. Another thing that connects with practicing gratitude is what Zig Ziglar used to call being a good finder, and that is training yourself to see the good in others, what you're thankful for about them, and telling them about it. Noticing it, telling them about it. Because 
not only when you notice it, does it help your own thankfulness and your own optimist, but when you verbalize it or write it in a card, which is very rare today anymore that anyone gets a card handwritten, it helps further solidify in your mind the blessing of having them, which raises your optimism because you realize how much you have, how blessed you are. This is an amazing concept because today I think it seems there is so much emphasis on how we are different and how people are interfering with things and how people are making things more difficult. I mean, it seems that the media and social media spend so much time focusing on the negative that this really almost needs to be a conscious practice. Is that what you're arguing for? It is. That's exactly what I'm arguing for. We need to make it a conscious practice. And what you mentioned, David, I am a firm believer against this cancel culture, which the cancel culture identifies one thing in a person that they disagree with, and now you're canceled. In reality, all of us have much more in common than we have different, hmm. much more in common. We have common fears and joys and family issues, so much more in common. So I make this a, a discipline in my life. I did this until it's become natural. See, over time, the more you discipline yourself to do something, the more you repeat it, it becomes natural, as you know. And so I didn't start out this way. But now when I meet people, I automatically begin seeing the good in them. And it used to be the opposite of that. And so just that in my life shows changes can be made regardless of what your natural default is. That is quite a testimony, Gary. Tell us about the book. How long has the book been out for? Uh, the book came out towards the end of uh, 21, if I remember correctly. Okay, so 2021, publication date of Opting for Optimism. How does someone pick up a copy? Uh, it's available a number of places online, uh, Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble. Uh, those are good places to get it. You can get it in the Kindle version or in a paperback. It's about 125 pages. I wrote this book, David, to be easy to read and short so that it would not be a difficult type of thing and practical. Very good. We want to talk more about the book, more about practical things that can make a difference in your life, each of you who are listening today. I'm Dr. DeRose. we got to step away just briefly, but we will be back right after this. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please reach out to us on the web at A-I-A-N-L dot O-R-G. That stands for American Indian Alaska Native Living. Again, A-I-A-N-L dot org. Or you can call us at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. We are strong. We are resilient. And we will get through this together. But these are stressful times. And it's important to also practice good self-care. It's normal to feel overwhelmed, anxious, or afraid. But there is hope. Reach out to someone. Connect with your friends. Stay in touch with your community. And know that you are not alone. Learn more at wearebroadcasters.com slash hope. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. When Jim died, I wondered if I would be able to keep the farm. 
Then I heard about the USDA's loan program for socially disadvantaged farmers and ranchers. It's for women and minorities who may be having trouble getting credit. Once I was approved, the USDA's Farm Service Agency helped me get the credit I needed. Now I don't have to sell, and I can pass the farm down to my kids the way Jim's dad passed it down to him. I know he'd like that. Contact your local USDA Service Center or visit www.fsa.usda.gov. Social Security is with you through life's journey from birth to retirement. As your life changes year to year, so do your needs. For over 80 years, Social Security has helped to meet your needs and is committed to improving access to the services that make a difference in your life. Today, you can verify your earnings, estimate your future benefits, apply for retirement, manage your benefits, and even change your address all from the comfort of your home. Social Security's online services help put you in control with secure access to your information anytime, anywhere, allowing you to spend more time with family, friends, or simply just enjoying the day. Social Security, securing today and tomorrow. See what you can do online at socialsecurity.gov. Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. My guest today is Gary Moyer. Gary has been speaking to us about his relatively recently released book called Opting for Optimism. He's been talking about his own life journey, how he was not naturally an optimist, and how as he's tapped into some of these positive thinking techniques, it has made a difference in his life. Gary, I know folks, when they hear about another book, some of them get excited. I've got a lot of readers in my audience, others uh, maybe not as excited, but that's why we're doing the broadcast, to try to give people some of the critical uh, ideas, some of the key ideas in the book. Before we get into that, we want to walk through the various chapters of the book and all, but I want to give people another way to connect with you. You've mentioned that your book, Opting for Optimism, is available in places like Amazon and Barnes and Noble, but you also have your own author's website. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, the website is www.garydmoyer.com, and uh, right there on the homepage, you'll see the book, and you can click on a link to get the book. And there's also other information about the the speaking that I do and and so on. So all I've got to do is no dots or anything, no spaces, just put in Gary D as in, what's your middle name? Dean. Dean. Okay. Gary D Moyer. And it's M O Y E R. Correct. Correct. So Gary D Moyer.com. Yes. Okay. So easy enough. So if I can remember your name, or the book, Opting for Optimism, plug that into Amazon or Barnes & Noble, and I yeah. can pick up the book. If I go to your author's website, will I find anything else there beside an opportunity to buy the book? Do you have excerpts or anything like that? Yeah, there's. Uh, I don't have an excerpt on there, but it'll connect you to Amazon, which does let you read the introduction in the first chapter, I believe. Great, perfect. And you also have, like I said, other information about some of the uh, speaking that I do 
that type of information. There's also a resource on there, a self-talk card, which we can talk about later also. Okay. What did you say the other resource is called? A self-talk card. A self-talk card? Yep. Okay. We definitely need to talk about that before we finish. Okay. So let's come back to the book, Opting for Optimism. Give us a, a quick overview. Can you give us maybe like the chapter title so we kind of know where this book is going? Okay, so Opting for Optimism, it is a balanced approach to staying positive in a negative world. And the the first chapter defines optimism, which I say is an interesting definition. Someone who always sees the bright side of everything, and that can be encouraging or annoying, depending on your mindset. Um, okay. But the first chapter is defining optimism. Then the balances, the benefits rather of optimism. And then we talk about how to have intent, balanced intentional optimism. We have a chapter on practicing gratitude, being realistic, monitoring your mind. We have a chapter on building your self-image, one on responding to life's lows, one on releasing the negatives, one on learning to serve, uh, and a chapter on the enemy of optimism, the missing link, and the silver bullet. And so 12 chapters, and I've tried to write the book to be, as I say, a practical guide, not just motivating, not just nice read, but a how to do. So every chapter at the end of it gives you a few reminders of what you read, and then now what do I do? So a couple bullet points of how to apply what I just read. One of the other things I've noticed, Gary, that a lot of great theoretical books out there, but like you're saying, you know, trying to make it practical. Of course, those kind of exercises are always invaluable. The other thing I know that makes it practical for a lot of folks are stories. Are there many illustrations, practical stories in your book? There are a number of stories in the book to help apply what I'm talking about. Yes. If you want me to share one with you, I can share one with you. And this was from, this is based on the chapter on being realistic as an optimist. And this is when I was pastoring a church. And uh, because I, I'm also an ordained minister, and I was ministering to a lady who had been divorced. Well, she had been married once and divorced. Her husband had been abusing her. And now her new husband started abusing her. So she ended up getting divorced. And so I went to visit her and try to minister to her. And I know she was devastated to have to deal with this. And this is in the section under being realistic where I talk about denialism or denying mm. things. And I explain that denying our struggles sends them into hiding where they devise a surprise attack later. So denying things is not optimism. But for some people, it seems that way. So I talked to Sheila I call her Sheila. That's not her real name. Mm -hmm. I said, Sheila, I know you must be terribly hurting because of this. I know it's you, you're going through grief. You, your husband's beating you. and Now you're divorced. And she smiled, put a big smile on her face and said, no, I'm fine. Everything's going to be OK. It's really good. I said, Sheila, I know you're hurting. I, I know you're hurting. You don't need to put on the smile. We can talk about it. She said, no, it's fine. It, it was almost scary, David almost mm. scary. And, and I could not get her to let go of that at that time. And what happened was that came back later. The grief she would not work through came back later. And she started living a very 
immoral, strange lifestyle. And, and so that was an example of where I, where I saw how important it is. We've got to be realistic as we seek to be optimistic. Mm. Because if we're not, it can come back and hurt us later. So it's interesting. I'm trying to process what you're sharing. And we know from research on grief in general that one of those first stages of grief in, in many of the models is denial. And really, it's, it's a way, like you mentioned, of not processing the grief, not dealing with it. And it's inevitable that we will have to come to, to grips with anything that tr- traumatizes us. So what I hear you saying, Gary, is sometimes we may even run into someone who might seem extremely optimistic in the midst of adversity, but what we're seeing is not true optimism. Their head is kind of buried in the sand, if you will, whatever analogy we want to use. And uh, this isn't a sign of strength. It's a sign of problems. So how do we know that? How do we know that uh, that she didn't just read your book and is uh, smiling because she's uh, opting for optimism. Had she read my book, she wouldn't have been doing that at that time because <laughs> I talk about the importance of processing grief. Mm. And I mentioned, you know, I, I come from a Bible background. I mentioned it's all through the Bible, this realism, the Psalms. I mean, the, the psalmist, they verbalize their grief. Jesus, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, I mean, he... He said to his disciples, I am sorrowful to the point of death. Hmm. Well, this is a life principle. We've got to process grief. And when we, it's positive to process grief is what we need to understand. To go through that difficult time and experience it is positive. It will help us be optimistic later because we've processed the negative stuff. We've worked through it so that it eventually is released. Now, I know your book is not a grief recovery book or anything like that, so you're not going to deal with that comprehensively. But the bottom line that I'm, I'm getting from you know this kind of sound bite, if, if we will, is uh, we need to not just sweep things under the rug. We need to address those things that are painful and traumatic, but then we need to start bringing in these principles for optimism. So where do you go from there? Let's say you had talked with this woman and you said, no, come on, be real. It's okay. You can cry. And she did. And she broke down and said, yeah, I feel terrible. Another husband's abused me and I had to leave. Where do you take that person then from there? I would spend, and one of the things, David, too, I did early on in my life before my first wife passed away was I was, I learned about grief recovery and was teaching it. Little did I know it would help me. Hmm. But what I would do with Sheila, had I had the opportunity, if she did actually become real with me, is listen and just be there and listen and ask questions. Well, tell me about so on. Sometimes we want to tell people when they start sharing grief, oh, it'll be okay. Don't cry. No, they need to cry. They need to process that. But then after time, after that processing, I would also, at a point where it seemed right, help them understand there will be a time when you are going to make it through this, you're going to come out of this. I I want you to know it's okay to go through it, take your time, but understand if you will go through it, you can come out of this and you can go back to life. Now life may be different, but you can live an optimistic life. I want to encourage you with that hope going through this will help you to have that optimistic life you're looking for. Tremendous, tremendous. So we want to go into that mode now because we've heard that message early in the book. You define things, you 
encourage people to be realistic. But then you start building a framework for optimism, this so-called bio model. Tell us again what the, the bio stands for. Balanced, intentional optimism. And it's important that it's balanced, that it's not denialism. It's not over the top, just keep a smile on your face and everything's perfect. And it's intentional. It's not going to happen automatically for most of us unless we're born that way. We've got to make choices, do things so that we have that optimism. Balanced, intentional optimism. It's one of the foundations of the book. Gary, we're going to have to step away just again momentarily. The book again, Opting for Optimism. Tell us one more time if someone wants to connect with the book and with you personally, your website is what? www.garydmoyer.com. Okay, Gary D. Moyer, M-O-Y-E-R.com. We're going to be back with more with Gary D. Moyer and Dr. David DeRose. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. American Indian and Alaska Native Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please contact us on the web at AIANL.org or call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. A message from the National Police Association. It used to be that any able-bodied person would offer to assist a police officer in danger. Now, passers-by are more likely to take a video. There's a better use for your phone when an officer's in trouble. Call 911. Tell the operator where you are and what you see. Then, start your video to provide evidence later. To learn more about how you can assist law enforcement, visit nationalpolice.org. That's nationalpolice.org. Unlike other health concerns, mental illness is not always easy to see. Depression won't show up on an eye chart, and you can't measure it on your bathroom scale. Sorting out a mental health concern is not something to attempt on your own. You won't find a bipolar disorder by looking at a thermometer. Like many other health conditions, help for mental illness takes professional diagnosis and treatment. Anxiety won't just go away under a stick-on bandage. So the sooner you seek treatment, the better. If you or a loved one has a mental health concern, don't go it alone. Find out what to do. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral, call 1-800-662-HELP. Learn more at samhsa.gov support. That's S-A-M-H-S-A slash support. Using meth taught me everything about freedom, only not like you think. It taught me how easy it is to lose your freedom. If you think meth is taking control of you, ask for help. You have the power to be truly free. I know. I'm Jan, and I'm free from meth. If you or someone you know is struggling with meth, call 1-800-662-HELP for 24-hour free and confidential treatment referral. Learn more at samhsa.gov meth. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to our second half of today's edition of American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. 
Gary Moyer is my guest. He's the author of the book, Opting for Optimism. And Gary, as you're sharing the story behind this book, I think a lot of my listeners picked up on the fact that you're not a guy writing about optimism because everything's gone great in your life. You mentioned having lost a spouse. Are you open to sharing a little bit about that uh, with us? Sure. My first wife, Laurie, had cystic fibrosis. And so we knew, I knew when I married her that uh, unless a miracle happened or the medical world uh, had some amazing advancements, that her life would be shorter. Um, when I was at seminary, uh, her health started going downhill. And so I remember the day she came back from the doctor. I wasn't able to go with her that day. Her mom was in town. Uh, I was in class, had exams. I was working. They came back and told me the doctor had told her she only had 18 months to live unless she had a double lung transplant. Wow. And that was devastating. So my father and I went and got tested nuclear testing and found out we uh, we matched and we could be living donors. So we were each going to give a part of one of our lungs to heal her, basically to replace her lungs. Wow. What we found out, though, was her body was no longer responding to antibiotics the way it needed to for post-op, that her body wouldn't reject those lungs. So they said, well, we just need to test for new antibiotics so we can do this surgery. Problem was, it was just an emotional roller coaster. We thought it would be easy. There's lots of antibiotics. So we would drive from Bering Springs, Michigan to Kalamazoo, and she'd give them a sputum sample. And on the way home, being a man of faith in the Bible, I'd say, yes, this is it. We were both saying, okay, they're going to tell us this is it. We're going to get the operation. It's going to get done. You're going to live longer. And a couple of days later, we get a phone call and the doctor's office would say, we're sorry, those antibiotic, your body's not responding to those. You need to come back and we're going to test you again. And so we'd say, oh, well, okay, no problem. We'll test again. There's lots of antibiotics. And we'd go back. And this happened again and again. It was just wow. this emotional roller coaster. Each time us expecting this would be it because we had faith that this would happen, our optimism, you know. And what happened was eventually we got a call from the transplant center because they had heard that her body did get now somewhat of a response to some of the antibiotics she had been using. So we expected, okay, they want to meet with us, this transplant team, because they're ready to do the transplant. But when we got there and sat with the doctors after a while, they were kind of hemming and hawing around it. Um, and finally, one of the doctors said, if you want to know the truth, and then they explained, not in these words, but because you have Pseudomonas cepacea, this bacteria in you that makes this a very difficult operation, and because your body's not fully responsive to these antibiotics, we're not willing to do the operation. And actually, they hinted at it was because of their reputation. They didn't want the reputation of their transplant center armed either. And you can imagine what that did to us. It was just mm. devastating. And she eventually died. I, I wow. We did everything we could, but she died. And I, I was broken, of course. I lost the love of my life. But I also had taught grief recovery before this and learned I needed to go through grief. And I learned that I would come through it if I allowed it to happen. And the fact is I understood grief a, a little bit. And, and so I did come out of it. And my, I, have, I had a hope in God that I will see her again. That's my personal hope. I'm going to see her again. But I started practicing and can, started practicing these, these things that are in my book. I had to make conscious choices 
through my grief to do what needs to be done to keep a balanced optimism. And that helped me through it. And, and life is good. And God blessed me with another wife and we've been married for 25 years and life is good. But it, that was, that was a difficult time, but making choices on balanced intentional optimism helped me navigate that. That's such a moving story, Gary. Thank you for sharing that. And it helps all of us see that this isn't just some theoretical book. This is really from your life experience, like you mentioned at the beginning of the show. Help us now understand, so someone is listening right now. Maybe they're on a reservation. Maybe they're living in an urban setting, uh, Native American, elder, let's say, maybe a young person. Maybe the person's not Native at all. But they're relating to some area of grief, whether it's a job loss, whether it's the loss of a loved one. Maybe it's the loss of a a career dream. Maybe they were trying to get into some academic program that was very competitive and they've just been, you know, rejected for the third or the fourth or the fifth time. Talk to someone. How do they start building a more optimistic outlook? What are these practical steps? Okay. One of the things you need to do is monitor your mind. I like to say, think about what you think about. And that is so often what we allow just thoughts to come through our brain and we don't monitor them. And a lot of times these thoughts are negative thoughts that are not going to help build our optimism. Um, we have negative thinking many times normal for many of us. So we make a mistake and you say in your mind, you idiot, or I knew you were going to do that. And so we need to start monitoring our mind. Um, for instance, when I, as an example of this, when I, I fly RC planes, radio control planes, just small ones. When I was learning to do that, I had a trainer and I'd be, I'd get the plane up in the air uh, and, and I'm kind of watching it there and it'd be kind of drifting towards the trees more, but I'm just kind of watching it. And, and the thing the trainer would say over and over again was fly the plane. And I didn't know what he was talking about. I'm thinking I am flying the plane, but I was just holding the transmitter. He was saying, you got to remember, you've got to, you've got control of that plane. You're getting too close to the trees. You know, you got to, you know, turn the ailerons this way, turn the rudder to the left. And so I apply that to our thinking because I've noticed in my life, and maybe some of you listeners too, there are these thoughts that come into my mind. And sometimes we just allow them to ruminate Hmm. and they're negative thoughts. They're thoughts that bring us down. So we need to monitor our mind. We need to put the right things in our minds and that helps us to monitor when the wrong things come in. So I encourage people listen to positive motivational recordings, inspirational recordings, read positive inspirational books as a regular habit, relational, relational uh, monitoring of our minds. Who do we hang out with? Are they positive or negative on us? Um, in one place, the Bible says bad company corrupts good morals. So I encourage us to have a positive posse, people around mm. us who will encourage us, who have the right way of life, who, who give us the right thoughts. And then something that Zig Ziglar used to call auto university, automobile university. And that mm. is this is this is amazing. There was a study done at the uh, University of Southern California a number of years ago that showed that if you live in a metropolitan area, and you drive at least 12,000 miles a year, in three years' time, you can learn the equivalent of two years' college education while you're driving your car. So I like to say I want to be a road scholar, right? So when I'm driving, I'm listening to motivational recordings. As a Bible believer, I'm listening to the Bible. I'm learning Spanish as I'm driving. 
In other words, I am monitoring my mind and being very intentional about what I put in my mind because what I put in my mind, my input affects my outlook and my outlook affects my output. And so I've got to be very intentional about what goes in because the world's going to be putting stuff in when I'm not. Mm-hmm. You know, when I walk into Walmart or somewhere, there's music playing. That might not be the best music for me. I'll see a TV playing. That might be not be the best picture I want to see. So I've got to be putting the right stuff in. So that's monitoring our mind. So let's talk with some to someone, Gary, who's listening to what we're talking about, and they're saying, well, I work in an environment where I'm being bombarded by this stuff. Maybe they work, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, commercial business. Maybe they're playing that, uh, you know, music, and maybe the music is putting maybe some bad memories in their mind. Maybe it's associated with a time in their life that they didn't like. I mean, we go through all kinds of scenarios where the workplace is putting thoughts that that they don't want to have. What do you do in a situation where it seems like the very environment is moving your mind in a direction you don't want to go? A couple things. First thing is that is all the more reason you need to do what I just said, (laughs) that we need to be intentional, that we have got to be reading stuff regularly, memorizing things that like I like to memorize encouraging scriptures or, or statements. We've got to be very intentional because of that. And in some cases, David, as difficult as it may be, we may need to change our job. Hmm. Because when you think about it, job money is not the most important thing in the world. I mean, if we're earning good money, but it's taking us down in our attitude, that may not be worth the money. We may need to actually change the job, change the people we hang out with sometimes. Because it's going to affect our lives and we affect other people's lives. Our family is going to be affected by that also. So all the more we need to be intentional that when I'm driving to work, when I'm coming back from work, I'm listening to positive stuff. When I'm on my break, I'm doing that. And so I've got to be very intentional and all the more intentional when I'm in those situations that some of them I can't change. Fair enough. You've got some later chapters in the book that I think... If my listeners are anything like me, I mean, we're really drawn to, you talk about a silver bullet, you talk about an enemy, uh, some of these things that seem very engaging. Do you want to walk us through some of those uh, chapters that really raised our concern as far as what just is he going to cover here? Yeah, I'll, I'll touch on them briefly enough so we can get, get them in. One of the things is building a self-image, and that is, again, right input, just briefly. Uh, There are things we can do to build our self-image, to understand what we're worth just as human beings, the worth, the potential we have. Um, That's where the self-talk card comes in, by the way, David. Mm. And this is on my site. You can download it. Well, I think it's a download or I can email it to you. And it is positive language that you speak to yourself by faith while you're looking in the mirror, in the eye, with enthusiasm. For instance, first person, present tense. I, Gary Moyer, I'm a person of integrity with a good attitude and specific goals. I have a high energy level. I'm enthusiastic. I take pride in my appearance and what I do. I have a sense of humor, lots of faith. You go right through this by faith. These are attributes that we want. So we claim them by faith, looking ourselves in the eye with enthusiasm. And this builds it in us. You can't keep saying that stuff and it not become reality in your life. Otherwise, you've got this dissonance. Um, Responding to life's lows is an important one. Learning to respond to the negatives in life. And I give an example. For instance, when I 
let's say I'm walking out the door and I accidentally bump a potted plant on a table, it falls to the floor, breaks, there's, there's ground on the floor, there's soil on the floor, I can say, oh man, just ruined my day. Now what am I going to do and fuss mm-hmm. about it all day long? Or I can go through some questions I have in the book on that chapter that gets me to think through what just happened and how to deal with that as an optimist. And then there's a chapter on releasing the negatives. That is learning to forgive. And I talk about how to do that, how to modify our memory. Because a lot of times what happens is in our mind, the reason we're having a hard time forgiving someone is because we keep replaying at least what we think happened. And over time, our minds adjust it to benefit, to make it look like we were all in the right and Mm. the other person was all in the wrong. And in reality, no one truly knows anyone's motives. And so in that chapter, I even, that's one chapter where I, um, I quote Dr. Dick Tibbetts, who wrote the book, uh, Forgive to Live, where he says, by choosing to reframe your story, you can change your memory of the past and free yourself from its chains. Wow. Freeing ourselves from the chains of unforgiveness. Garrett, you're really helping us focus on some of these keys to optimism. I know you've got more for us. We've got one final segment. I'm Dr. DeRose. Gary Moore is staying by. Please do the same. A lot more coming up in our final segment right after this. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. If a natural disaster comes knocking, how prepared is your family? You can't just close the door on earthquakes, floods, or hurricanes and hope they go away. That's why it's important to make a plan now. Ready.gov slash plan has the tools and tips you need to prepare your family for an emergency. So if disaster shows up at your doorstep, you'll be ready. Visit ready.gov slash plan and make a plan today. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. I'm just texting him back. I'm just posting a story. I'm just changing the song. I'm just... No. When it comes to distracted driving, just don't. Sending a text takes your eyes off the road for just five seconds, but in that time, your car can travel the length of an entire football field. Any distracted driving just isn't worth it. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. What is a number story? My number story started with fear and a lack of support, and it has led me to be there for others. A number story begins in our childhood with ACEs, adverse childhood experiences. My number story begins with the separation from my father and the emotional abandonment from my mother and leads to me being a role model to not only myself, but those around me by becoming the person that wasn't there for me. ACEs are so common, two-thirds of us have one. My number story begins with drug abuse and homelessness and leads to realizing that I can live life by my own standards. A study found the more ACEs, the more likely we may experience a host of serious health effects, physical and mental, but that doesn't need to be the case. Your ACE number is simply an entry point to your own story. Where it leads is up to you. My number story begins with years of emotional abuse and leads to peace, clarity and security in my self-worth. Take control of where your number story leads at numberstory.org. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaska Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. 
Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back for our final segment of today's show, American Indian and Alaska Native Living. We've been speaking to Gary Moyer. He is the author of the book, Opting for Optimism. And Gary, you've shared something with me off air that I think is worth mentioning. So many times people, when they realize I have an author on air, they say, well, this guy's just trying to make money. I mean, he just thinks if he sells something that uh, telling everybody they can be happy, this is his path to retirement. You've got an interesting business plan with this book. Tell us a little bit about it. David, I'm a huge advocate against putting an end to human trafficking. And so all the income from this book is going to fight human trafficking. There's a couple of organizations I support. I've spoken to some organizations. And uh, so that's a a, a big passion of mine because of the the damage that human trafficking does to the human psyche, to the self-image. It just ruins lives. And, And we're talking about a worldwide crime syndicate that 27 million children and adults are are trafficked. We're talking about a multi-billion dollar crime syndicate. Wow. So, so Gary, when you say all the income, this is not just the profit. I mean, if someone buys the book, the funds that come to you as the author, all of that's going right to fighting human trafficking. That's right. Yeah, I'm, I will not be making a profit on this book. It's all going to fight human trafficking. Wow. Well, thank you for your uh, not only optimism as far as your own outlook, but also uh, trying to spread that by more than just books. You're actually trying to make a difference in people's lives. That's uh, that's powerful. But let's come back to the book because folks are saying, I could use a little bit more optimism. And if they're like me, I mean, one of the chapters that is probably kind of drilled into their consciousness is one that's called The Silver Bullet. I know it's toward the end of the book, but you have to tell us about that before we finish. What is the silver bullet? The silver bullet, I have to actually have to tell you a little bit about the chapters before. The silver bullet is the answer to the enemy. And the enemy of optimism is procrastination. Because mm. if I'm going to be an intentional optimist, a balanced intentional optimist, I've got to do the things to become the intentional optimist. And the missing link is procrastination. If I procrastinate on what I've learned in the book, I will not become an optimist. And so I need to find a way to apply that, to do it. And that's the failure of many seminars and books when we don't, when we can't apply it. And so the silver bullet to applying to becoming a balanced intentional office um, optimist is enlisting others enlisting others to help me be accountable to the things I'm going to do to become an optimist until those things become habit. And so when I say enlisting others, the term I have coined is we all need to have a progress partner. Hmm. Now, some have called that an accountability partner, but that word scares a lot of people. Hmm. So I use progress partner. I say a progress partner is someone who has got your back while pressing you forward. And Hmm. so this is someone who listens to you, helps you gain an understand, gains an understanding of what your goals are. They help you identify your strengths and weaknesses as you're trying to adopt optimism. They help you create a plan of action. They hold you accountable. In other words, when you say, well, I'm going to start doing my, I'm going to write down three things I'm thankful for every day, 
that person may say, okay, I'll text you such and such a times and ask you, have you been doing your Thanksgiving list or mm. whatever else I'm saying? This is someone who will hold me accountable. They'll, they'll come alongside me. They'll encourage me. They'll be honest with me when they think I'm, I could be doing better. They'll encourage me. But this is such a, a missing link that it's this silver, you've got to have this silver bullet of this person because most of us, if we're honest, we're short on discipline. Now, there are some people who are really good at it, but most of us need help until we create a habit. And that's where the progress partner comes in. One of the things that uh, many of my listeners are aware as I conduct both online and in-person group programs. So as we're talking together today, Gary, I'm asking the question to myself. I mean, would this be a, a good book for me to to use as part of a group program, whether it's a virtual program or a program in person? Uh, uh, what do you think about that? I didn't design it for that purpose, but I designed it to be practical. And because I did, it can be used in a group because at the end of each chapter, in other words, a group can come together, they read the chapter, and when they come together, you now go over the things to remember, which is at the end of each chapter, and then things to do. And so that's where the discussion comes in now. Okay, hey, have you started this? Oh, how did that work? What did you think about? In other words, I made this book to be practical, which lends itself to group usage. Great, great. So tribal council members listening to this, he says, hey, this would be great. Um, Maybe one of our tribal health directors might like to use this in a program, or maybe someone who does work in a health department uh, for a tribe, or someone who's not even native. I mean, like you, maybe they're a faith community leader. They're saying, I'd love to do something with this book. Is there a way to buy the book in quantity at uh, prices that are less than what we might get on a Barnes & Noble or Amazon? Absolutely, yeah. If you just go to my website and use the contact portion of the website and just contact me and say, hey, we'd like a large amount of these. How can we get them? Then I just, I'll talk with the publisher and I'll get them at a discount price. And Sounds I'll good. pass that on. So I've got to remember your name, Gary D. Moyer, right? GaryDMoyer.com. The reason I used the D, I had to use the D to get the website because uh, Gary Moyer was already used. So Okay. So they got to remember you got a middle initial D. You told us that was for Dean, correct? Okay, GaryDMoyer.com. You can connect with uh, Gary's resources. You can get that free. It's a card that you print out. Is that how it works? Or actually, I email it to you when you ask for it, and then you just print it out. And uh, it's just positive affirmations you claim first thing in the morning, looking yourself in the eye in the mirror, first thing in the morning, you're starting your day, and the last thing at night before you go to bed with enthusiasm, looking yourself in the eye, because the eye is the window of the heart. When you look yourself in the eye, this is serious. You do it with enthusiasm, because the more enthusiasm you use for something, the better it sticks. Hmm. And what happens is within within two weeks, if you're doing that regularly, you're going to start seeing your attitude raise, because you're claiming the positive things you want. You're verbalizing that. You're looking yourself in the eye, and you're seeing more possibilities in life. It's really amazing what that happens, especially when you combine it with Automobile University. Constantly when you're driving, listening to stuff that's positive, that's motivational, Mm -hmm. that's inspirational. You put that together, you got something really positive going on. Okay. The book, the self-talk card that's free, the book that we can purchase by going to your website, 
Gary, I, I know a lot of folks as they've listened to to our dialogue, they've uh, said, boy, this is something that can help me. But I know you've got other stories in the book. Tell us another one about someone's life who was changed by using these principles. Um, let me tell you the best one is, is uh, Zig Ziglar himself. His story, and I don't put his story in my book, but his story is he started out as a salesman selling waterless cookware and uh, was not doing very well. In fact, he said, that doesn't mean I didn't sell anything. He said, I did. I had to sell my car. I had to sell my furniture. In other words, he was having a rough time. But he went to a meeting, a sales meeting, and his hero in that organization was speaking. And after speaking at that sales seminar that day, this guy caught him in a corner and said, Zig, I've been watching you, and I've never seen such a waste. And it mm. caught Zig's attention, and he says, Zig, I believe you could become more if you would just believe in yourself and go to work on a regular basis. You know, be more disciplined in what you do. And so because Zig Ziglar believed him, he, he honored him, he knew that man was telling the truth, he started believing in more of what he could do because someone else encouraged him he could do it. Mm. And he started following a lot of these principles and he became one of the most successful people. I mean, helping thousands and thousands of other people become successful in life, be more optimistic and so on. He, he was called the master motivator for many years. I mean, he was, he was known for this. And so he's one of my heroes in life. Because he was a balanced person, a loving person. I got to know him in person. Just uh, probably the best example I can think of. Wow. That's, uh, that's amazing. There's nothing like the personal influence. And we thank you for sharing your personal influence on today's show. The book, Opting for Optimism. You've got it on my radar screen. As we wind up the show, Gary, if you were to leave my listeners with a final message, a final word of encouragement, what would it be? That is this. You really and truly can choose to be more optimistic. You can choose to do the right things and you can follow through. I want to give you that glimmer of hope. It is possible. I'm doing it. Other people are doing it. You can do it. Gary, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule and joining us on today's broadcast. You're welcome. It's been a real pleasure to be here with you, David. Well, if you want to connect with Gary, remember the website, GaryDMoyer.com. You can get the book. You can get the free self-talk card. That's all the time we've got for today. As always, I'm Dr. David DeRose wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.